Welcome to the Maritime Executives podcast series, In the Know. I'm Tony Munoz, Editor-in-Chief. Our Executive Corner podcast will provide conversations with top executives concerning events and issues that are shaping our industry today. We will also bring you up to speed with the latest news and editorials covered by the Maritime Executive. Welcome to the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast series, In the Know. I'm Paul Benecki. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Ward, the author of the new book, China's Vision of Victory. Dr. Ward is the founder of the Atlas Organization, a consultancy focused on Chinese and Indian national strategy. He has also consulted on geostrategic issues for political risk consultancy Oxford Analytica and for the U.S. Department of Defense. In this telephone conversation, Dr. Ward joined us to talk about China's rise and the key role that the maritime sector plays in its ambitions. For the details, listen in. So, Jonathan, if you want to just tell me a bit about yourself and your background and um, what brought you to study China and its ambition. Hi, Paul. It's good to be here. Um, so, I'm the author of China's Vision of Victory, which was, um, you know, an important book on Chinese global grand strategy. It's been very widely read um, in government and national security and around the United States. Um, my background is initially I did my doctorate in China-India relations at the University of Oxford, spent a whole bunch of years um, traveling around the Indo-Pacific um, in order to learn about these key countries, how they fit together, what their you know, interests are going to be in the 21st century, how they're going to shape the world. And um, you know, a whole lot of that turned out to have a maritime angle to it. Um, you know, while I was at Oxford, I began um, interacting with the maritime community in London and speaking to the, the um, people in the Navy and things like that. Um, and just, you know, finding that there was this very important dimension to China's grand strategy to its um, competition with India and the United States that I think today we're all aware of, but I think people were a little less um, attuned to that um, some years ago when I was getting into all of this. But the bottom line is it's um, been an ongoing interest for, for almost 15 years now since I started Chinese language um, as an undergrad. And I put about 10 years into, um, you know, working through a, a, a deeper understanding of the country that culminated in the book. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, ever since I've been consulting with, with all kinds of organizations to help them understand what this means for their business strategies, for their investment strategies, um, you know, for all, all sorts of uh, different applications once you understand what China's goals and ambitions really look like and what the consequences are for any given organization. Well, thank you for joining us. Well, so in the maritime world, people think of China and they immediately think of trade. Uh, and, of course, right after that, they immediately think of U.S.-China trade war. How is that going and who is it hurt the most? Um, has it actually positively affected the U.S. trade deficit with China? Um, is it achieving policy goals? Well, I think the way that I look at this is less to do with the deficit and more to do with the U.S.-China relationship. And you're talking about an economic relationship that I think we all understand um, failed to achieve the broader strategic goal, which was, um, you know, from a U.S. policy standpoint, that uh, commercial engagement with China would lead to um, a positive, productive um, relationship between our country and theirs, and that that would be sort of a stable underpinning for international order. So we welcomed China into the post-Cold War world. Uh, we opened the doors to them in so many ways, from, from trade to, um, you know, even technology transfer, all sorts of things. And ultimately what that did was rather than create 
um, as policymakers thought a responsible stakeholder and a partner to the United States, it um, created an emerging superpower adversary, which at this point we all see um, as the, the biggest national security problem that the United States has got. And when I look at something like the phase one um, you know, trade deal between the U.S. and China, it has more to do with beginning to address the problems in the U.S.-China relationship, um, the economic issues from intellectual property transfer to market access to all of those pieces. And, you know, the idea in my mind is really to have them on paper for the first time and say, you know, these are our expectations in this economic relationship, and, you know, you have to abide by that. Uh, whether or not they'll honor this, obviously, it's been complicated by COVID, but it was complicated from the beginning because you're talking about a regime that has had a fundamentally predatory relationship um, with, with, with the United States. Um, so, you know, we've reached a point at which the U.S.-China relationship has deteriorated so substantially. Um, and, you know, that won't be solved by a trade agreement. Um, it's, it's a much bigger, um, you know, geopolitical contest than that. And so there are there policy levers uh, that the United States can pull that would return the trade relationship to something that looks a little bit more like normalcy, or are we past that point now? I think we're way past that. And and those that are expecting a sort of return or rebalancing to normal in U.S.-China relations, I think, um, you know, have, have, you know, more to learn about what's really at stake here in the U.S.-China context. And the best... Um, you know, guide to that is really understanding what the Communist Party's um, actual goals and strategies really are. And, and it's very simple in a sense. It's, you know, they seek to, um, to become the dominant um, nation state in the international system, to rearrange the international system to their favor, to surpass the United States in terms of economic and ultimately military power, and basically to usher in the Chinese century. And those who look at that in a purely economic um, you know, from an economic perspective, thinking that, you know, this is going to be a big growth opportunity. It's going to be a, um, an opportunity for all sorts of um, business and engagement, investment, and what have you, are missing what that actually means for, um, you know, the international order, which is to have an authoritarian and at this point really uh, 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 essentially a totalitarian state um, as the dominant um, party in world affairs. And that's why you know, it's unacceptable from a national security standpoint. It's why um, U.S. government is reoriented almost across every agency to um, to deal with the China challenge. And I think those in the business community, in the maritime community, in the investment community need to understand that this place that has, you know, driven a great deal of trade and investment over the past uh, 25 years is now essentially a strategic adversary of the United States of America. And our foreign policy is going to um, reorient around that problem, um, you know, in, in a way that's essentially historic. I mean, it's been a long time since we've had a problem this big. The last one was the Cold War. And, uh, you know, that's where we're headed. The people really need the briefing. So maritime is obviously very important to China and a very important part of this puzzle. I mean, they, they have the world's largest ship owner by tonnage. They have the world's largest ship leader, uh, also by tonnage. And, of course, the, the world's largest Navy, at least by ship count. And so why is maritime such a big focus for them? What is, what is so strategically important about this for China? 
Right. Well, well maritime is very interesting because a lot of people looking at the U.S.-China competition at China's rise are focused on things like technology and AI and just sort of the, the frontiers of Industry 4.0. And they miss the fact that in many ways this is a far more fundamental context. I mean, the rise of China in many ways um, is, is more like the rise of the British Empire, where you're talking about um, a global economic geography. Um, you're talking about building a military that's meant to defend their overseas interests. That's how they talk about it. Um, you know, it's not just the frontiers of AI or space or those sorts of things. It's the, the buying up of ports around the world. It's building a massive um, maritime force. And it's ultimately all linked to their goals in trade and economics. I mean, you're talking about a country that cannot meet its own needs uh, for development within its own borders. Um, you know, it was export-driven for so long as well. And, um, you know, their integration with the global economy, um, as they see it, ultimately requires them to be able to have expeditionary military power, um, you know, and, and to be able to defend their key um, resource interests and trading interests around the world. So that's where this basically becomes an imperial vision. And I think we'd all know something in the, like the Belt and Road. I mean, that, um, you know, massive intercontinental geography from, from, uh, Europe to Africa to, um, you know, throughout the Indian Ocean and the West Pacific. I mean, that's the, the real sort of, um, imperial map of, of China's economic interests and ultimately of their military interests. So, um, you know, it's, it's not just a regional situation. It's something that basically takes the global economy, integrates into it, and then um, ultimately sees itself as uh, having to protect and defend um, their economic interests worldwide. So, so you know, um, the aspiration to have a kind of, um, you know, informal empire that spans different continents is at the heart of their long-term vision. Because, again, it's not just the China of 2020 that we have to think about. Um, their vision is built on two centenaries, as they call it. So, you know, the first one's the founding of the Communist Party, but the second one is more important. They say that from 100 years from the founding of the People's Republic of China in, you know, 1949, by the time we reach 2049, that's when you really have um, the Chinese empire uh, consolidated. The Belt and Road will be built. The industrial plans will have been achieved the military modernization, as they call it, um, will be achieved, and they'll have um, a force that can defeat any rival. Beijing also has a concept called civil-military fusion, right, that Chinese companies are expected to operate uh, in conjunction with or supporting Chinese military objectives if and when called on. And, of course, a lot of this outward push has a, a very strong civilian, at least, appearance to it, right, that it's, it's commercial that they're building infrastructure, that they're building ports for civilian purposes. To what extent should we also view this as furthering China's broader strategic and military objectives? I think the whole thing is linked together, and civil-military fusion is one of the most important aspects of Chinese grand strategy. Um, it's something that I've, I've helped to popularize a little bit on television and bring this up to very wide audiences in America. Um, but it, it was previously sort of unknown outside of specialist circles and outside of military circles. Um, and, you know, what it is, it's essentially a, a, a strategy, a concept that it is meant to bring um, military innovation um, to the party. So, you know, as their civilian industries develop, you know, um, whether that's tech companies or, or logistics companies or, or anything, um, the innovations that are, that are coming about through uh, civilian industry will be brought to the party so that they can keep up and sort of um, 
build upon their military goals, and ultimately, as they say, close the gap with the U.S. military. And maritime and shipping um, provide, you know, a, a very important dimension to this. I mean, um, you know, shipping is one of the uh, 10 industries made in China 2025 that they seek to to dominate, you know, in their words, um, over the, the coming decade. And, um, you know, their maritime goals, at the end of the day, I mean, it has a great deal to do with securing trading interests, with protecting sea lines of communication, um, with building up their uh, capabilities, uh, not only in their immediate region, but, but outside their region, and having two of the world's largest shipping companies, having the ports that they have, you know, worldwide, um, you know, having access to things like Herman Bentota, all the rest of this. And it's quite a big picture strategy that um, ultimately, you know, is driven by the party, and the party seeks to integrate all of this as much as possible. And another thing that's happening that I think is very interesting, because people try to make the distinction between the civilian economy and the state-backed economy in China, and the party's breaking down all those lines. You know, they released a directive um, from the, the Central Commission recently that has to do with um, creating a, a backbone of private sector business people and private sector companies that can be reliable in key moments. And the whole idea is that they're going to participate in national strategies, you know, adhere to party ideology, and, um, you know, ultimately adhere to the party's goals. So so you're talking, I mean, this is, I think, where the totalitarianism in the system is, is evident. It's the fact that it all ties back to these grand strategic goals, and really everything is done in service of their broader objective called the Great Rejuvenation of the Chinese Nation, which is the project of um, bringing China to be the dominant, um, you know, power in world affairs. It's a long-term project, um, and, it, and it requires every little piece. It's a very intricate set of strategies. I've described them all and pulled the whole picture together in China's vision of victory. Um, but maritime is an essential piece because of their um, desire to dominate the international trading system. And so... This has implications um, for all entities that end up doing business with China, right? I mean, and maybe even more so for entities that engage directly with Chinese state-owned enterprises, um, some of which have a very explicit dual uh, civilian-military function. And, you know, the example for me that comes to mind immediately is uh, China State Shipbuilding Corporation, um, which recently constituted with uh, another state-owned enterprise and became the world's largest uh, shipbuilding corporation. Um, and so, you know, they're also the, they also build China's Navy. Mm -hmm. And so, to what extent should the, the ship owner or the, the shipping investor be aware of, of the implications of doing business with an entity like that? I mean, to what extent are they contributing to China's rise? Well, I think that's incredibly important because I don't think that investors are accurately assessing China risk. I mean, they're investing in China, it seems to me, as though geopolitically it's, it's you know five or ten years ago even i mean to to have a true understanding of how your investments fit into um, civil military fusion into the rise of china's economic power in general and then also to understand that there is um you know a, a, U, a united states counter response to all of this i mean the sanctions that are being placed on china um, you know, the entities list, the use of all kinds of economic tools that the U.S. has, and the potential use of many new and, and different economic tools that haven't exactly been deployed yet. Um, I mean, that's really what investors need to understand. I mean, if they're investing in something that is as closely tied to the Chinese state as, as their maritime strategic industries, um, you know, an investor needs to understand 
exactly how that's tied to China's strategic goals, to the Chinese state, to the military, um, you know, that's no longer something that one can just um, put on the back burner. Um, you know, it, there's, there's a high chance that all of these industries will be targeted by the U.S. and other allies. Because at the end of the day, I mean, to have China um, pumping out a military that's designed for conflict with the United States and our allies, and you're going to start sanctioning um, the engines that, that create that military. Um, and, you know, I mean, just last week, Xi Jinping was at a Marine Corps base telling the Chinese Marines that they must focus on preparing for war. You know, this is a very common thing that he's been saying for years now, and, and China's vision of victory describes a lot of this. I mean, how the military objectives work, you know, how she communicates um, with his military on the strategic goals of the party. And, you know, the bottom line is, um, you know, we've already seen the use of the Chinese military uh, for the first time in the 21st century um, in the Himalayas this summer versus India, and the first, um, you know, killing of, of, of neighbors, of a neighbor's um, you know, soldiers um, in the 20th century, they went to war with, with Vietnam, with India, with the USSR, with the United States, with, um, you know, United Nations forces in the Korean Peninsula. So when these guys talk about preparing for, for conflict and war, um, I think it's very important to take them seriously. So the investor needs to understand precisely what they're doing when they're investing in the rise of a key strategic sector, um, like Chinese maritime activities. And so we talked earlier about policy levers regarding trade. Um, and at, at present, most of these industries that would be contributing to uh, Chinese military expansionism are, are not affected by any U.S. or Western restrictions that I can think of. Um, you know, this, and it's very common for Western ship owners and investors to build uh, their ships at Chinese yards, um, specifically state-owned yards. Prices are phenomenal. They're extremely affordable. Um, to what extent do you think that um, Western governments should be thinking about this now and maybe uh, contemplating restrictions to put on these kinds of business relationships? I think that's coming. I think if, if, if you think of it this way, I mean, we're in the year 2020. Um, this decade is going to decide the outcome of the U.S.-China uh, competition. So um, preparing for a, a much larger array of policy tools to be applied to the Chinese economy, to Chinese companies to Chinese strategic industries, um, you know, that's what the 2020s is going to look like, in my view, um, you know, and, and, and we have quite a, uh, a, an experienced history when it comes to economic containment um, and economic measures against uh, adversary nations. So, uh, you know, I think shipping is a key place to the, the government will have to focus, um, you know, and, and I think another side of this is really as as shipping becomes more of a next-gen industry with, with um you know, digitization and big data and all the rest of it, I think that's where you naturally start to see the split between the U.S. and Chinese tech ecosystem begin to um, go into the more physical industries. So being a ship owner, ship builder, it is um, trying to build, um, you know, sort of big data-ready ships and such. I mean, I think you're going to need different yards than, than China. I mean, you, you don't want to do the whole thing there in the sense of be, um, you know, because they're, they're trying to, to update their shipping industry for Industry 4.0, and no doubt we'll be making those sorts of offerings. Um, but I think that that's, that's another reason for people to think about, uh, you know, where this really goes. And um, so you mentioned also about China's increasingly uh, militarily oriented rhetoric and their potential willingness to use force, at least in past conflict. Do you see its naval capability as a threat to the United States? 
and other nations, perhaps its neighbors? Well, I, th I think there's, um, you know, the U.S. obviously maintains certain important advantages in, in, in um, you know, the naval domain. But, the, you know, as they say, qu uh, quantity has a quality of its own. So the idea that, that China at this point is um, built forces that are substantially numerically larger than its neighbors and, and even than the U.S. Uh, presence in the in the Pacific, and that, that's ship count rather than tonnage, of course. But, um, yes, I mean, they've, they've really changed the, the military balance. Um, I think it has more to do with their missile capabilities. Um, that's what's really created, you know, anti-access area denial uh, throughout the West Pacific. Um, but the other side of it, of course, is their ability to create expeditionary forces. I mean, they're increasing the size of their Marine Corps. Um, you know, they've gained blue water experience over the past decade or so with anti-piracy operations and their submarine fleet is, you know, more and more capable. So their ability to to go beyond the West Pacific and into the sort of broader reaches of their Belt and Road. I mean, the Indian Ocean, I think, for example, is a very key uh, piece of China's military geography. And, you know, one can look at it as, um, you know, China's waging a two-front strategic competition right now, one with the United States in the West Pacific and the other with India in the Indian Ocean. So their ability to to, to press India both in the Himalayas, but also potentially in, you know, the Indian Ocean itself is, um, you know, going to, to change the strategic geography of this picture quite a bit. And what is China's biggest challenge right now, both uh, inside and internationally? I think the biggest challenge for China is the fact that they um, – require engagement with the U.S. and the rest of the world in order to meet their strategic goals. So, um, you know, they, they would never have had this economic rise if we hadn't invited them into the global trading system and essentially to the globalizing economy as it, as it you know, happened after the Cold War. And, um, you know, they're still heavily dependent on international export markets. They're dependent on international capital markets. And they're, um, you know, they still have a lot to gain from um, taking technology from other countries. Um, you know, they have developed their ability to innovate. They, ha they are developing their capital markets. But I think none of that is sufficient for them to achieve their vision of victory if, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. and other allied countries begin to disengage with China economically. And I think it's very likely to see us disengaging. You know, people talk about decoupling, for example, and, you know, a, a strategic decoupling where you're um, cutting them off from key technologies, um, key industries that are dual use or, or civil military fusion ready, um, and also from, uh, you know, aspects of, of investment capital. I and mean, that's all going to be very important. I think that's where U.S. Uh, strategy towards China ultimately has to go in the 2020s is to kind of economic containment, um, where you're no longer facilitating their rise, um, because, you know, we can't accept the geopolitical consequences of a China that's achieved the next um, frontier of economic uh, growth, really. I mean, they seek to convert all of that into military power and to dominate their region and ultimately to, to uh, become the, the, the top power in the world. So, um, you know, it starts with a, with a level of economic containment that um, I think that, that could be very problematic for them. You know, on one hand, I think what people have to expect is that, um, you know, having dependencies on China in in you know, areas where the U.S. should not be dependent on an adversary nation, I mean, that's going to have to change. I think one big thing from COVID that, that um, people have come to understand is that being dependent on China 
for, um, you know, medical goods is, is not going to be acceptable. I think that conversation is happening in Congress in a pretty serious way now. Um, you know, being dependent on China for things like rare earths as well. I mean, that's, that's clearly, uh, not such a great idea. You know, having a, a, a consumer electronics supply chain that's, that's too tightly linked to China, I mean, that's not a good idea either. Um, but selling them, you know, consumer goods, um, you know, that kind of thing, I mean, that's, that's not such a, such a problem. I mean, selling them energy may actually be to our benefit because you have that sort of stability in the relationship if we're able to, to, um, be exporting certain um, goods to them. But, uh, you know, fundamentally, it's going to require a revision of the international trading system, one in which we cannot be dependent on a strategic adversary for things that are vital to our security and prosperity. And on the other hand, it's going to require um, building new um, approaches to international trade. I mean, if you think about the way to win this contest, and I do think that there's a way to win the contest with China, um, it's going to be about integrating um, essentially the free and democratic world. I mean, the world's democracies still make up about two-thirds of global GDP. And the idea that we're going to be somehow, you know, by necessity dependent on, um, you know, China as an authoritarian, you know, adversarial state, just uh, it's not necessary. Um, I mean, you can start to build in new supply chains, new trading relationships, new centers of growth um, in ways that reduce dependency on China and uh, put us into a position where where we, um, you know, don't have that sort of vulnerability. Um, and, and that's where this becomes a very different uh, sort of concept of the world map. I mean, if you take things like USMCA and, and you have that sort of raw economic uh, power of North America, and you use that to sort of create a center of gravity to which other nations begin to um, prioritize their, their economic relations, you know, that, that could be important. But then you're going to have a contest throughout the emerging world um, throughout, you know, uh, South Asia, South America, you know, Southeast Asia, Africa, I and mean, all the many of the nations that China has identified in the Belt and Road. I mean, these become contested spaces where the U.S. Um, will have to uh, begin to compete. And you already see government advancing alternatives to the Belt and Road and such. And then I think deeper integration between um, the U.S. and India, between India and Japan, between um, Europe and, 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 and parts of Asia. I mean, all of these can be built around China. And I think that's the kind of trading order that people are going to want to um, have a vision of, because uh, we're probably going to have to take big steps towards that direction uh, throughout the 2020s and 2030s. Thank you for listening to In the Know, the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next exciting discussion on maritime technology, business, and policy. In the meantime, please visit us online at www.maritime-executive.com for the latest news and views from around the industry.